My gospel reading for this morning is from the Gospel according to St. Mark, verses 1 to 8. Mark, verses 1 to 8. <clears throat> Let us hear the gospel. Glory be to thee, O Lord. And as he came out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For a nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Praise Christ for his glorious gospel. Praise be to thee, O Christ. Grant us, O Lord God, the knowledge of your divine words and fill us with the understanding of your holy gospel and the riches of your divine gifts and the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. Enable us with joy to keep your holy commandments and accomplish them and fulfill your will and to be accounted worthy of the blessings and the mercies that are from you now and at all times. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. This building is coming down. One of his disciples made a pleasant comment about a beautiful place, and Jesus slaps him down with this abrupt retort. Not one stone will be left upon another. Jesus sounds like a pagan warrior king or a modern radical. Is this the Jesus who fed the hungry crowds? Is this the compassionate teacher who healed thousands of sick people? Is this the gentle shepherd who delighted in the children who played around his feet while he taught the crowds? I'm a little touchy about this passage because I could be that disciple. I love beautiful buildings. I love to admire the old buildings downtown with their exquisite craftsmanship. I was so happy when the builders of the PP&L Center decided to preserve the dime savings and trust building and incorporate it into the new structure. I love attractive buildings in downtown Bethlehem, and when we lived in Philadelphia, I especially loved wandering among the impressive buildings in Center City. But the temple in Jerusalem was in a class far above any buildings that we have. Solomon built the first temple, and it was a magnificent building of cedar from Lebanon, luxurious textiles, silver, bronze, and gold everywhere. That temple was destroyed by the Babylonians. The temple was rebuilt after the exile, but it was not as magnificent as Solomon's. Then Herod the Great began a massive building campaign, which culminated in one of the most wonderful temples in antiquity. Josephus, the Jewish historian, writes of its splendor this way. Now the outward face of the temple in its front, wanted nothing that was likely to surprise either men's minds or their eyes, (laughs) for it was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight, and at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look upon it to turn their eyes away, 
just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. But this temple appeared to strangers when they were coming to it at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as those, to those parts of it that were not gilt, they were exceeding white. This temple was so stunning, you didn't even need to be knowledge about architecture to be impressed. Only a blind person would be unmoved by the extravagant beauty of the temple in Jerusalem. But the temple was more than a pretty building, a lot more. The temple was where God's people came to worship. It was crowded every day with people who came to pray, rabbis who taught in the courtyards, the poor and disabled who hoped for alms, and priests. The priests offered sacrifices every day in the morning and evening, and choirs of Levites sang psalms to God, and God was there. When Solomon built the temple, God filled the temple in the form of the fiery cloud, and his awful presence lingered behind the curtain, suspended above the cherubim. Rome was the center of the military and political power in the world, but Jerusalem was the center of spiritual power. God ruled the earth from his temple in Jerusalem. Jesus knew all this. The temple is where Mary and Joseph presented Jesus to God. The temple is where Jesus met with the teachers as a boy. Jesus celebrated the Passover with his family at the temple. In fact, prior to the event that we read just just now, (laughs) Jesus had spent much of the day teaching in the temple. All the evidence points to Jesus having a great affection and showing great honor to the temple. So why would Jesus so flippantly declare its destruction? The clue is at the end of our gospel reading. The disciples expected Jesus to restore Israel. And we don't have to guess about this. After Jesus had risen from the dead, he met with the disciples and he continued his teaching about the kingdom of God. They asked, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? (laughs) And the twelve were not alone in this. That's what everyone expected at one time. Earlier in the week of our gospel reading, Crowds of people had heralded Jesus as their new king while he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Extra-biblical literature is full of messianic speculation. First century Judea was on edge, expecting the Messiah to show up any time. And that's one of the reasons why John the Baptist attracted huge crowds. And when Jesus appeared, it seemed increasingly evident that he could be the son of David who would expel the Romans, restore the Jewish kingdom, and rule in righteousness. The temple was central in this picture. God's righteous rule would extend over all the earth, but it would be centered in the temple in Jerusalem. This is what the disciples had in mind. And they got it partly right. Jesus was the son of David, and he was establishing a righteous universal kingdom, but not by military might, and not centered in a building. What the disciples forgot was that the temple was a replica. Neither did the disciples understand that Jesus was going to do more than chase off the Romans and defend the righteous. They didn't know that Jesus' universal kingdom would be more than a mere political rearrangement on this earth. They didn't know that the followers of Jesus would be an entirely different race of people. Jesus didn't come merely to fix the problems on earth and reestablish Jewish Jewish rule. Jesus came to establish a a, a new earth and a new race of people. 
Jesus came to burst the old wineskins of human culture and to create a new earth, a new race, and a new kingdom to worship in the true temple. So Jesus was a radical after all. So in, eight, so in verse 8, Jesus says, these are but the beginning of the birth pains. The world was on the edge of undergoing severe labor pains. When they begin, the universe will convulse. Babies are wonderful, but they come at a price. Birth is an exhausting and painful experience. That's why they call it labor. Jesus is going to create a new world and a new race, but it will come at a price. The birth of this new world will be painful, and part of that pain will be the loss of the beautiful temple. You've probably seen replicas of buildings, scale models. When we renovated this building, the architect created detailed blueprints specifying how it was to be done. <laughs> building projects, which are more extensive and better resourced, sometimes go a step further and order a scale model. Now, a model has all the features of the finished product. It has a roof and walls and doors and windows. Uh, it looks like the, the, the real thing. But no one would want to stop with a model. A model serves its purpose very well. Its purpose is to show people how impressive the final building will be, what it will, what it will look like, and how you might use it. But no one would want to stop there. You need to finish the project with a full-scale building. The temple in Jerusalem was a model. Twice, when God was giving Moses the instructions for his dwelling place, he said this, and I'm reading from Exodus. Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all of its furniture, so you shall make it. Exactly. And why was God so explicit that the tabernacle had to be constructed exactly as he specified down to the last detail? Well, it's not because God is a micromanager or obsessive compulsive or it's not because the tabernacle wouldn't work any other way. No, it was because the tabernacle and later the temple was a copy. And that's what the author of Hebrews explains. In Hebrews 8, we read, They serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. The temple in Jerusalem Glorious as it was, and the center of the worship of the God of the universe was only a copy of a temple far more glorious and far more central. The disciples couldn't understand this, and neither can many people since then. The whole book of Hebrews is about worship as Jesus instituted it, worship in the new covenant. In the old covenant, people went to the temple in Jerusalem to worship God, that was right and good. It's what God required of his people. But God never planned for that temple to be permanent. It was a copy of the true temple, a scale model. It was a stunningly beautiful model, and it perfectly served its purpose, which was to provide access to God until the Messiah should show up. Until Christ came, the sins of humanity kept us from coming close to God. Only the high priest, and only once a year, could he enter the Holy of Holies, where God had his earthly throne. And the high priest could only enter safely by carrying blood to offer to God as an atonement for sin. But that atonement was only good for one year. 
Every year, the high priest sprinkled blood before God to atone for the sins of the people, and every year he returned to do the same thing over again. Sin was covered temporarily, but not destroyed. When Jesus came and paid for our sin, Jesus didn't enter the model temple. He carried his blood into the true original temple in heaven, and his blood is good for eternity. Not only is Jesus' sacrifice eternal, it's complete. Jesus didn't merely cover our sins. He broke the power of sin and cleansed us of the pollution of sin. When Jesus entered the heavenly sanctuary, the massive curtain in the temple in Jerusalem ripped from top to bottom to signal that from now on, everyone can come close to God. Jesus is our great high priest who entered the heavenly sanctuary with his own blood, and now all believers can follow him. And if we follow Jesus, where does that take us? It takes us to heaven, where Jesus is. Because Christians do not worship in a temple on earth, we worship in the heavenly temple. The author of Hebrews concludes his book by describing new covenant worship. In chapter 12, you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And that's where we are today. We are here in the heavenly Jerusalem. We're rubbing shoulders with millions of angels all dressed up for the banquet. All the saints of all the ages are here. God is seated on his throne, and Jesus is here to welcome us. What? You can't see them? No, this is a spiritual reality. It's not a physical reality yet, but that doesn't make it any less real. Now, when God saves human beings, he saves whole, whole people. I cringe when I hear people, when I hear someone talk about saving souls, because God doesn't merely save souls, he saves whole people. Soul, mind, emotions, body, all of us. <laughs> God receives us by pouring water over our bodies. When we're baptized, God saves us out of the world and brings us into his covenant, and then God gives us a new spirit, and we believe in him. Our lives begin to be transformed into the likeness of Christ, and our spirits participate in heaven. Now, we can see that life transformation. We can watch people as their behavior changes, but we can't see the spiritual dimension of life. We know there is a spiritual dimension because the scripture tells us. All through the New Testament, uh, read it and pay attention. All through the, we read that we are in Christ, that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly realms, that we worship with the angels. It's all over the place. the spiritual dimension to our new life. It's invisible. So how do we experience it? We experience it by faith. We who believe in Jesus believe his word, and Jesus says that we participate in his life even though our bodies are still here on earth. Our salvation is not yet complete. Salvation will be complete when our spirits are reunited with new eternal bodies. When God saves, he saves body and soul and all of us. Now, our bodies are not yet saved. We still struggle in these bodies, which are subject to all the miseries of life. These bodies will even die someday, but our spirits are saved. 
Our spirits are free from the guilt and corruption of sin. Our spirits have entered that spiritual dimension. Someday, we will enter God's presence in our new eternal bodies. But now, our spirits enter. We who follow Jesus enter the original heavenly sanctuary in our spirits, which means that the model sanctuary is now useless. Who wants to live in a model house when the final house is completed? The very idea is silly. The temple in Jerusalem was a model of the beauty and glory of the heavenly temple. And it was useful while we were unable to enter the heavenly temple. But now that the doors of heaven are open, who in his right mind would want to worship in a model? The temple in Jerusalem outlived its usefulness. But why, why, could it, why should it be destroyed? Couldn't it continue to be used as a meeting place? so that its beauty could serve another purpose? No, because the temple had become a den of iniquity. The beautiful, glorious temple in which God was worshipped had been taken over by wicked men who still continued the rituals of the Old Covenant but no longer believed in God. Jesus addressed this situation all through his ministry. He relentlessly challenged the false religious leaders. He drove out the merchants who polluted the temple. He he taught the true words of God in the temple. But in the end, it was the temple leaders who put Jesus to death at the hands of the Romans. These men were not weak theologically. They, They were not pastorally misguided. The temple had become inhabited by vicious enemies who would destroy anyone in their path. Jesus spent his whole ministry preaching to them, but that only hardened their hearts. Listen to a taste of Jesus' teaching uh, about the religious leaders, reading from Luke chapter 11. Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you Pharisees, for you love the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perish between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. And Jesus goes on like that. Finally, Jesus gave one last powerful warning to these men. A few hours before the the events of this morning's gospel reading happened, Jesus told a parable about a a vineyard whose owner tried to collect rent from his tenants. The tenants refused to pay until the owner sent his son. And then reading from Mark chapter 12, But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And they were seeking to arrest They, the the Jewish leaders, were seeking to arrest him, but they feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. At least the Jewish leaders weren't stupid. They immediately understood the parable. 
They were the custodians of God's vineyard. They were not returning to God the worship that he deserves. If they do not repent, God will come and destroy them and replace them with others who will worship God in spirit and in truth. But they didn't repent. They redoubled their efforts to kill Jesus, and eventually they succeeded. And in today's gospel reading, Jesus is teaching that that parable was not idle words. It, it, it wasn't just a vain idea. The temple had become the enemy of God, and God was going to destroy it. The apostle John gives a vivid picture of this in the Revelation. In chapter 12, an angel shows him a woman sitting on a scarlet beast. John writes, The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. This is the centerfold of Revelation. A woman so stunningly beautiful that the great apostle John can't keep his eyes off of her. It took the angel to get John's attention off of this woman. We learn that she was holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality, drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. The whore of Babylon was a vicious killer who murdered anyone in her embrace, but was also irresistibly beautiful. Now, this is a picture of all sin, which entices us, entices us with its charms, but ends in death. But it is specifically a picture of the temple at the time of Christ. For after the Jewish leaders had killed the body of Jesus, they continued to molest his body by persecuting the church. Revelation chapter 18 goes on to describe the utter destruction of Jerusalem, and chapter 19 describes the celebration that follows. The disciples couldn't see it, but those beautiful buildings housed the most murderous people who ever walked the earth. The temple was gorgeous outside, but horribly ugly inside. The religious leaders had to die, and the beauty which enticed God's holy people had to be destroyed. The false religious leaders had to go. But couldn't true believers still worship in the temple? Well, in fact, that's what the first Christians did. At first, the church was entirely Jewish, and the new Christians worshipped as they always had worshipped in the synagogues and in the temple. But now they were worshipping the Messiah who had come, rather than a Messiah yet to come. But it became less possible to continue worshiping in the temple as the Jewish leaders intensified their persecution of the church. Remember, Paul testified that he pursued Christians from city to city, arresting, arresting and imprisoning them wherever he could. And I'm sure that Paul wasn't the only devout Jew who felt that this was the right way to defend their faith. You see the beginnings of Jewish persecution in the book of Acts. But as the century wore on, that persecution intensified. The religion centered in the temple was not sympathetic to Christians, nor was it neutral. These men had no intention of allowing the church to survive. They would destroy the church even if they had to kill every living Christian. There was no compromise with the temple. Now, we must note that the wickedness that we're speaking of is not true of the Jewish people generally. This is not an anti-Semitic diatribe. Anti-Semitism, like all racial hatred, is a terrible evil. It's a gross sin, a sin that can't be tolerated in any shape or form in the church. The first century evils we are discussing were perpetrated by specific first century individuals against the church, which, by the way, was predominantly Jewish then. 
This passage has no more to say to Jews in any subsequent generation than it says to any ethnic group. The church is called to oppose racism everywhere against Jews, African Americans, Arabs, or, or, or anyone. When the <coughs> Samaritan woman at the well asked Jesus where we should worship, Jesus said that the hour was coming when the true worshipers will worship in spirit and in truth. That hour came when Jesus entered the true original sanctuary and threw open the doors to all believers. The true sanctuary is in heaven. The temple was only a model. Believers were instructed to worship there until the Messiah came, but after Jesus entered the true sanctuary, the model became useless and worship centered there became false. We worship in spirit as our spirits join the spirits of all believers in all ages in the heavenly sanctuary. This means that God will never be worshipped in an earthly temple any more than he is worshipped in any other sort of building or anywhere that Christians gather on the Lord's day. So the Jewish people may someday build a temple in Jerusalem, but that will have no more bearing on Jesus' kingdom and rule over the earth. Now, the passage we read this morning was a real historical event. You know, this really happened that Jesus and his disciples left the temple and they had this conversation, and Jesus predicted a real historical event. In A.D. 70, Roman armies came and destroyed and burdened the temple. Now, that was not an accident, nor did it happen while God was distracted by something else. The Romans destroyed the temple because God sent them there to do that. It was a fulfillment of the prophecies of Jesus and a judgment on the Jewish leaders who had rejected Jesus and were persecuting the church. Now, this is also a pattern which repeats itself in every generation. A church, a denomination, an institution, an organization which once served God may reject Jesus and become his enemy. The beauty, the glory, the wonderful memories, the fat endowments, the old friends remain, and they seduce us to compromise. We think that we can serve God in spirit and truth, even in a place with an evil spirit which embraces falsehood. Some people, on the other hand, become so angry with the treason of such institutions that they, that they spend their lives campaigning against them. Neither compromise nor angry campaigns are healthy. Jesus sees what is happening. Jesus has everything under control. He has all authority in heaven and on earth. Jesus waited 40 years before he executed judgment on Jerusalem. Who knows his timing? We're called neither to compromise nor to anger. We're called to follow Jesus. Let Jesus rule his kingdom as he sees fit. And so... We follow Jesus into the true temple in heaven, to the heavenly banquet. So come every Lord's Day, sing with the angels and the saints, listen as Jesus talks to us, enjoy his bread and wine, leave with Jesus in you to comfort and empower you to serve in this world. Today, we're surrounded by the host of heaven. With them, we worship God and the Lamb. In a little while, We shall enjoy the feast Jesus has prepared for us, and as we eat the bread and drink the wine, Jesus mystically enters us, fills us, comforts us, empowers us, makes us more into his image, and prepares us for his service. This temple is so much better than the old one. Let's pray. 
Lord, your ways are always higher than our ways, and your purpose is beyond our understanding. For you only possess perfect knowledge and wisdom. You periodically shock us, just as you shocked the disciples while on earth. Grant us the humility to accept your will, even when we don't understand it. Grant us the patience to bear with our trials, even though they be mighty. Open the eyes of our hearts to see you as we gather with your saints around your throne each Lord's Day. Nourish us, for we are hungry. Strengthen us, for we are weak. Encourage us, for we grow faint. Send us forth as your servants to be your presence in this troubled world. In the name of Jesus, whose blood has cleansed us and granted us entrance into this heavenly temple in which we stand. Amen. Amen.